welcome to Beyond the Hall of Winthrop. There are many layers to a successful business, but what does it take to commercialize your innovation? Join founder of Ginger Imagery and marketing manager at Bloom, Imogen Blow, and a cast of alumni who share their top tips for budding entrepreneurs and steps to take commercializing your innovation. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to this uh, second edition of the alumni podcast. Today we are talking about how to commercialize your innovation. And we've got three very, very different innovators from across the globe here. We've got Jackie. Say a little hello, Jackie. Hi, how are you? Um, and we've got Nate Strook um, from Abicom from 2015. Hello, how are you going? And we've got Dr. Antoine Musso. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Terribly sorry, Antoine. Sue. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so I, I'm Imogen. I'm a BCOMS of 2018. I studied double, double major in psychology and marketing, and I was going to become a um, psychologist in my honours when I did this unit at UWA called Launchpad, and I'll, I'll talk more about Launchpad at the end. And I don't want to say it sound cringy, but it quite literally changed my life. Um, and since then, I've just been um, innovating and I've started my own business called Ginger Imagery. And that's just a drone-based business. And I'm just trying to get my, my claws into the mining industry at the moment. So, um, yeah, I just, units like that really show how the landscape of innovation is changing and how organizations like UWA is really putting their best foot forward to, to make this happen. So I guess we better introduce the main stars of the show. Uh, let's start with you, Jacqueline. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I want to hear your first memory of UWA Winthrop Hall. Hi, uh, thanks Imogen. And just really encouraging to hear that UWA is innovating or, or evolving as well to introduce more, more programs and that support entrepreneurship that's it's really important. I my first memory of Winthrop Hall, I mean driving down Sterling Highway repeatedly. So seeing sort of that the, the big clock and that beautiful building is was probably my image. Walking in, I think was maybe with uh, scrambling to have tried to study the night before some exam and thinking that I was, uh, you know, was I going to make it or not? But I think the, generally speaking, the campus was a pivotal moment of feeling like this is the beginning of, you know, moving into the sort of next stage of life. And I think, I mean, aesthetically, it's just a stunning place and really incredible uh, academia, quality of professors and um, so, yeah, impactful and, and definitely recall that moment of inspiration. So I am currently in New York City. I moved here in 2011. So I've been in America since 2008. Um, my career journey went from, so I, I was majored in corporate finance and marketing at, at UWA. Um, my first job was at Babcock and Brown, which no longer exists. We had a a fall from grace during the financial crisis in 2008-2009, but it um, inspired my move to New York uh, to America. I moved from a merchant banking role into an early stage tech travel startup. So I think there's a theme in my career of always going big institution, startup, big institution, and I think the general motivation or satiation for me has been about pushing edges or, or boundaries 
um, whether on larger platforms or actually at startup platforms. So from Babcock and Brown, I moved to a venture-backed startup in San Francisco, I was there for about three years. The company was uh, sold to TripAdvisor, who I think you're probably familiar with, and then moved to New York in 2011, did business school, spent six years on Wall Street, so two years at Credit Suisse, uh, four at JP Morgan. There I was covering consumer and retail in the investment bank and uh, a subset of us were, we formed a group called Disruptive Commerce. So we had the good fortune of working with companies like um, Peloton and Sweetgreen and Rent the Runway, so some big disruptive names in the US. And I think my general calling has always been to move into building something and you know whether it causing a lot of noise within platforms like JP Morgan to see how we can be doing things differently or better but then ultimately made the move to in 2019 uh, into the cannabis industry so some really interesting things happening there from an emerging perspective um, the US has made pretty great advancements from a regulatory perspective in the last really seven, eight years. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting, I mean, being in the cannabis industry is a broad statement, but there's, you know, anything from biotechnology to uh, consumer packaged goods, technology solutions. So really um, a whole range of asset categories that are growing, you know, at a sort of, in a, a hyper accelerated way. My, I formed a partnership with a, a woman who'd been in the industry for many years, Tahira Remitula, to form a, an investment and advisory firm. So we do direct investing into uh, companies that are across multiple sectors, cannabis, CBD, uh, technology, and consumer brands with a big lean towards the emerging cannabis industry. Um, and in addition to that, have also joined a one of our portfolio companies, which is a, a, a peer-to-peer CBD wellness brand as the chief growth officer. So all my eyes and focus, whether it's investing, advising, or um, actually being on the operating side is about helping these companies or my own companies grow um, and to really support the, the advancement of what I consider a really critical industry. Um, the, the plant itself has got some really amazing uh, health benefits and there's a whole host of uh, dynamics going on behind the scenes with um, social justice, etc. So I feel even it's probably been the most challenging thing I've ever done, um, but absolutely the most rewarding and feeling very motivated to be, um, to influence the evolution of, of the industry. And now we're edging into psychedelics as well. Awesome. You have packed so much into your career. How amazing. Yeah, congratulations for all that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Nate, um, and, and I'll just add a little caveat here. Nate actually facilitated or, or ran a program called Sprint um, that I did. What was it? And maybe it was 2020, it was COVID. So it would have been a year yeah. now. I mean, it was the very beginning of COVID. It was, it was yeah, it must have been early 2020, I think. Yeah, so I'd only ever seen you online. So um, yeah. <laughs> I'm much shorter and you're much taller in, in real life. <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, so yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about your first memory of Winthrop Hall and what inspired your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, thanks, Imogen. Nice to see you again and nice to see you as well, Antoine, and nice to meet you, Jacqueline. 
Thanks. Uh, so my name is Nate Sturk. I'm the founder and managing director of a West Australian company called Skills of the Modern Age. Uh, so we're an education and tech company. Uh, we're all about helping people, communities and organisations do good in the world through innovation. And so the way that we do that uh, is through generally um, capability programs with large organisations. Um, and we also have some software products as well. So we've got two software products called Skill Social and Icebreaker, both that we've developed internally uh, that we're commercialising. So I always talk about myself as a bit of an accidental entrepreneur. I never imagined I'll be in my early 30s probably running my own business. Um, I didn't really have a view when I started uh, or left high school or started university around what I wanted to do. Um, and I really um, wasn't quite sure what career path I would take. So when I left high school, I joined UWA doing a double major in arts and commerce. And one of my main memories of Winthrop Hall was probably not my first memory, but definitely one of my main ones was uh, probably early on in that in that journey, probably semester two or three, doing a medieval history exam in Winthrop Hall, absolutely flunking it because I didn't study really at all and thinking, what am I doing doing an exam on medieval history, even though I was in this beautiful hall, Winthrop? <laughs> and so at that time, I, I actually said, no, I'll, I'll pause my university for a bit and I'll go figure out what I want to do. And so I was really fortunate through, um, through that decision that I went and lived overseas for a little bit in Canada, um, but then when I came back to Perth, I, I got a job selling insurance at RAC. And then I actually stayed at RAC uh, for almost 10 years. And they ended up paying for my undergrad at UWA, paying for my grad cert. Um, and through that 10-year uh, journey, I was really fortunate to, to be what's now considered an entrepreneur. Uh, so I, I won in 2007 in my third year employee of the year for writing a piece of software that was then used for all of the distribution centers. Um, but then in the last four of those 10 years at RAC, I actually got to build startups within RAC. So I got to run a small product incubation division, a small venture arm, um, and really try to change this 110-year-old organisation and get it ready uh, for the future work. So working with the board, working with the council, working with the leadership team um, to really think about um, what new products and services needed to be developed. So I got a bit of a taste for entrepreneurship through that journey. I started to get involved in the startup ecosystem here in Western Australia. So we ran RAC SeedSpark. I then got involved in Startup Weekend, um, Founder Institute, and then programs like Sprint, like Imogen just talked about. Um, and so I started to support entrepreneurs, but I wasn't really an entrepreneur myself yet outside of the corporate context. And so about four years ago in, in 2018, I took the leap and set up um, SOMA. So it's been a really challenging journey, particularly with COVID um, being around for pretty much the last two of our four years, but we've pivoted online. We now have worked with about 9,000 uh, participants across Australia and Southeast Asia. So we do most of our work here in WA, but we do a little bit of work in Brisbane, a little bit in Adelaide, a little bit in Singapore. And now our focus for the next, uh, next 12 months is really commercializing some of our software products. And so I write all the code and do all the front end and back end development for those. So I have to walk kind of a couple of different hats in my life, facilitation and business management, but also being on the tools and, and doing the software development, which I really enjoy. I was doing that, got up nice and early this morning and was doing that this morning. So it's something that gives me energy. Yeah, awesome. that's my, my journey. Yeah, so good. And you've also just packed so much into your, your career. It's, it's very inspiring. Um, yeah, and we'll just move to Antoine. So. Antoine is in uh, research and education at UWA. He's a, a uni lecturer. And uh, I actually was in one of your units. I think it was the entrepreneurship unit. Um, so I've heard you speak a lot, but yeah, please tell us your, your first memory of Winthrop Hall. Well, well, let me put it this way. I think uh, 
my first impression of Winthrop Hall was a little bit of awe uh, as to its presence and largesse. I never imagined I would be graduating in Winthrop Hall at any stage at that time, because this goes back to uh, probably the late 90s when I first came on campus. Um, but my career in this uh, entrepreneurship world sort of came a little bit back to front because I, uh, I studied and became an accountant with uh, what is now Ernst & Young many years ago. I wasn't too excited with the industry at that time because it was all about um, sticking to convention and doing things the way accountants do things and that sort of thing. So I was fortunate to get uh, a position like outsourced position in a hotel many, many years ago. I got excited about the industry and uh, I went into hotels. Obviously my uh, accounting background helped me a lot and I advanced quite rapidly. And uh, subsequently I went into the development of hotels and also private clubs, private membership clubs, like what we have here, University Club, Western Australia, which was indeed my first project here. Um, but being on campus so much and all that, I kind of uh, got up, caught, got caught in the air of students and all that. And somebody said something about an MBA and what have you. So I strolled down to the what used to be the Graduate School of Management in the Myers Street building. And before I knew it, I was enrolled doing an MBA. Um, MBA changed my whole outlook and life. I recognized probably why I had done well in my career and, and why some things I did not enjoy doing. Um, but it certainly opened sort of a new world for me and I started to uh, recognize the opportunity of doing other things across the board. I found it very hard to leave after completing my MBA. So I enrolled in another master program, which was all about innovation. That came to an end as well. And still I was wanting, I wanted to stay here. So I was allowed to do a master of management research, um, but that was the end of the road. I wasn't allowed to study anymore unless I do a doctorate. So I left, I went back into just industry, um, but I couldn't resist. I came back in about 18 months and uh, I started a doctorate. And with that, I think started my teaching as well. I found it at first I was apprehensive about it, but then I found it so fascinating being with students. I just kind of, I was in awe of their capability and many of them were more interested in what I did than what I was trying to teach. And uh, I don't know, I just fell in love with it and um, took it forward from there. And I'm, what I do now is research and I'm uh, teaching on postgraduate programs for Master of Biotechnology and Master of Professional Engineering, Master of Working Leadership. The spaces I teach in are in entrepreneurship and innovation. And a stronger focus now is emerging on the commercialization of innovation. Um, I think that uh, we're not short of ideas around and plenty of opportunities, but uh, 
commercialization is a hard road. It's not an easy road. And what I mean by a hard road is not an impossible road, but it certainly requires a lot of work. Uh, and it's a process that I've been working on with colleagues by way of research and developing what we are teaching. And I feel yeah. like what That's you were it. saying before about um, the students learning off you, I feel like you learn off them and they learn off you. And this is awesome. You, you it is so true because it is the students that actually ignite the next level of interest in things. So it's not, it's not one way at all. It's very much the way. And if yeah. it were that way, I don't think I would have stayed, frankly. Yeah, no, definitely. Oh, that's great. I feel like you guys all have such diverse backgrounds, um, which makes this all the more interesting. Um, and I feel like a, a lot of us do know that the front end of entrepreneurship, but it's that kind of the behind the scenes. It's it's what the investors are interested in. That makes, that's why I find that it's a bit of a, a black hole, I find. And so what do you, and, and I'll probably direct this to you, Jacqueline, at Highlands, what do you focus on when you're searching for emerging and innovative, oh, bit of a tongue twister, innovative startups? Um, do, you, do they need a working prototype or? It, it's really depends. I think the, the short answer is no, they don't need a working prototype. It, it certainly helps with one's confidence around the, the successful execution of a plan because at the end of the day I mean the, our at, at the Highlands our investments have gone from you know pre-revenue um so more of a, a patented concept to uh series c so you know much more further on value at half a billion enterprise value so a really huge range from a stage of company perspective I think it comes down to the a lot of it, for better or worse, is getting the right, the right idea in front of the right investor. And so, if you have a an understanding as an investor of what the you know the industry, the sector, the problem that is looking to be solved, if you get it and can therefore match the the idea with the need state, then that that's going to help a lot, particularly in these sort of pre working. Um, uh, if you don't have a prototype, then you have you sort of become like a strategic partner to that entrepreneur. So it, I'd see a lot of um, you know one uh, in entrepreneur can pitch an idea to an investor and it's an absolute no, and then you know knock on the next door and it's an absolute yes, and it comes back to understanding what the um, that product or service is and, and how it fits into sort of where that, you know, industry or sector or, or need is evolving. So we are, I'm, you know, again, at this, at that stage of company, any sort of projection or plan is you take it with a, a decent grain of salt because there's, there's only so much, particularly in, I mean, the cannabis industry, everything is changing multiple times a day. It's so really, you know, you've got regulatory regulatory dynamics changing rapidly. You've got a whole different, like a range of sectors that are feeding into the industry, or the industry is feeding into them. So I think the ability for management or the entrepreneur to demonstrate how their product or service fits into their sort of immediate operating plan, but also you know the, the broader lens of of what your what is your competitive landscape or and like what are the risks of you becoming obsolete when things are changing so quickly 
across the board. And so really having a good grasp on what is the dynamics happening, again, sort of from your execution plan and also what are the things that could threaten that execution plan and how do you pivot? Nate commented on pivoting to, um, to digital in the COVID world. That's a, you know, an example of we are, we know that things may change around us. The externalities are always moving. And so what do we do in that context? And I think that is the, that's the real demonstration of a sustainable product or solution, uh, product or service. And then granular, I, I'm, I've worked with many, many companies on the advisory side, advisory side, as well as, you know, obviously have a, an investment portfolio and then being an, on the operating side as well. The company, the difference between a company who knows and has real tight data that they track very, very closely, those companies are more likely to succeed because you can make informed decisions real time to address surprises or changes that, and, and I think that can be the differentiator. I mean, sometimes, you know, there'll be obviously a new technology comes into place and, and there's nothing you can do and you are, you know, no longer as relevant or as valuable, but for the most part, having a decently malleable infrastructure to enable change when change is needed and being willing to do that. Um, I think those demonstrating those things in for early stage companies is really powerful. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it's almost, it's almost like survival of the fittest, but for entrepreneurs, unless you pivot, you're out. Um, that's the way I see it. Um, do do yeah. you guys have anything else that you wanted to add to that discussion? I agree with, with um, Jacqueline when she said that, you know, like it, it isn't necessarily one shoe fits all. I think every project, and I like to refer to, to, refer to these as a project in their own right, um, not necessarily a business, it's a project, um, has its own set of characteristics. And uh, you need, you know, what we call in academic speak, I think a bit of sensing around, you know, what direction to take and how to take it. So, yes, I think it, you can never have like just one formula for something to reach, you know, the final commercialization stage. I, I think one of the key things that came through for me, which I agree with is, is around it's all in the execution and not in the ideas. It's all in the plan, um, not in the concept. And so, you know, there's the old adage that ideas are really not worth much. And, you know, in early stages, entrepreneurs often really want to protect their ideas and don't want to share them. But anyone that's been in this game long enough knows that the ideas are almost worthless. It's all about the execution and how you deliver on, um, on the idea. And so, yeah, I think that's probably the key for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess you grow that idea. Um, and I have this issue with my business. I'm like, when is it time to scale that idea? Um, and do you, when you launch a business, do you do a soft launch? Or there's so many questions around that. And so what are your biggest learnings, um, Nate, from commercializing SOMA? Yeah, so I think, you know, I would question, have we actually commercialized SOMA? Because uh, there's actually a really good podcast on this exact topic. I don't know if you've ever seen a free economics podcast by the same guys that wrote the book, and they were talking about why ideas fail at scale. And so they're talking more from a research point of view. One of the ideas was, was is the innovation or the idea succeeding because of the chef or the ingredients? And, and, you know, you've got to have that question of when you're looking to scale a business or an opportunity. And with our business, unfortunately, it's very much 
um, a business that is still me because I'm the consultant or the facilitator uh, for our for our um, for our education business. And so we do have a team. We've scaled in that way, but uh, it's really difficult to scale at large scale because it's still really really inherent on. Uh, on the people themselves and so it's about finding really quality people that fit the brand that fit the ethos that sort of stuff so um, it's not as easy to scale as a physical product where you can say well let's enter a new market or let's ramp up production you know there's limits there there's constraints there that you can't automatically scale um, automatically um, so some of my biggest learnings I think you know touching on the previous conversation I think it's around taking a portfolio approach so one of the big things that I've always done in my corporate life and now my entrepreneurial life is to have many irons in many fires. And so taking that approach of early prototyping, validating really, really quickly and figuring out does the market want it? You know, you still get false positives and false negatives through that approach where you're killing things that you shouldn't and you're, you're pushing forward with things that you shouldn't either. But I think that's probably the best way of doing it is having some hard metrics around your portfolio of innovations. So that might be a new product idea that you, you know, build a prototype or set up a landing page or do custom interviews for. Um, and really understand at an early stage before you commit your life or life savings or time to it and whether it's going to work. And we've got lots of, you know, my team used to make fun of me. We, they still do make fun of me because of all the things that we've tried and all the ideas that we've we've played with that haven't gone anywhere. But that's part of the approach. You've got to, you know, kiss many frogs to, uh, to find the right one. Um, I, yeah, sorry. I, I suppose that's part of the problem is it's hard to know if you're spreading yourself too thin or if you should just be, you know, not chasing shiny things. And I find that hard in my business. How do you been managing that? I think the key thing is, is clear priorities and goals. So one of the things that I'm a big believer in is using systems like OKRs. So they're objectives and key results. So we've always done that at a quarterly level. And then we look at them every week. And so we have, you know, quarterly goals, which don't, aren't always financial, but they often are. Or they might be, you know, acquisition goals. And if things aren't hitting those targets, because one, you're spread too thin, or two, the product's not good enough, or three, you've got the market wrong, well, then you need to have a tough decision then. So for me, the way you figure it out is saying, well, if these are the goals we've set and we're not hitting those goals, well, then that's your opportunity to say, do we persevere or do we pivot or do we kill? Um, probably my biggest learning around commercialization in the last four years, and I think it's just pretty um, common in an Australian context, is to think bigger. So I think we've got a real tendency to think just in our local market, just, you know, even in Perth, we just think WA, that's only 2.7 million people. Most investors or most businesses that want to get to a sizable enough revenue need to be thinking globally from day one. And so that whether that means looking to Southeast Asia straight away or going straight to the US, particularly when it's software products and not, you know, not limited by geography. So that's something that we're trying to figure out how do we do is how do we be a bit more bold and try to go big from day one rather than going well let's you know soft launch it in Perth where we might just be getting false positives because um, of our personal network so that's probably my biggest thing which I see in myself but also across lots of Australian startup founders is we don't really think big enough we think too small and that often means just focusing on our domestic market particularly for software I think. And and Jackie, um, sorry, Jacqueline, how do you find, you know, moving to New York, how does that change um, that point that Nate just mentioned? Yeah, it's actually, it's interesting. Um, when I first moved to, was working on Wall Street, having come from 
working at Babcock and Brown prior because every single deal we contemplated there was international. So doing a cross-border transaction was not a, a big deal. And then sitting in New York, uh, it was surprising to me that when we had to contemplate that, even though these these big investment banks, it was like this whole new thing that they had to navigate. So my point of saying that is there's some really great training that you get from being domiciled in Australia because you are contemplating um, international presence, which is, it's, it's complicated. You know, going into these like significantly different markets is a whole, it's almost like starting a new company. Um, and then, you know, knowing, hiring people, finding people you can trust, et cetera. So I think the, uh, I agree with Nate that as, like, what, what's the vision, you know, what's your motivation and, and what's, what, how accessible do you want your product or, or service to be? And I think to have real, real impact, then, you know, a population of 25 million going sort of thinking beyond that is, is much more exciting um it does come with the challenges obviously of going to different markets but i i think you know I, I get very excited every time i see a concept or a um a company that was started in australia that then you know lists on the, one of the new york exchanges because like atlasian was one um and there are some some cannabis activity happening now across the two markets so i Again, it comes down to what the motivation of the entrepreneur is at the outset. And if you're looking to solve a local problem, then you know your vision is local. But if you are particularly, again, on to next point on the software side where there are no barriers from a, a geographical perspective, then I, I think contemplating that, that scalability uh, into larger markets is it's just much more exciting. Um, and I do think here in the US, the there is, you know, the, you can do very well. Like if you if you're a CPG brand, for example, and you prove yourself in California or New York, then you there's a little bit of a, a belief that you've proven yourself to the rest of the world. Um, I don't know if that's entirely true because obviously cultures change significantly by by state or by city. Um, but yeah, I, I do think for your own your own, the problem that you're, you're solving for, um, and if you really do want to have impact on significant number of people, then do contemplate the, how you show up in you know, markets beyond Australia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I suppose the ultimate goal of all of, all of the entrepreneurs is to commercialize your, your startup. And so what, what steps, um, Antoine, you'd probably be the best to answer this one. What, what steps should you take to commercialise your innovation and, and make it viable? Can, can we as entrepreneurs control our own destiny? Okay, I'll start with the end. I think that uh, with the end question, I think what my colleagues here have said is uh, so true about the entrepreneur. And I think that is the, one of the most essential ingredients and that is the personal traits of that entrepreneur uh, combined with the idea that has probably been uh, examined and uh, investigated and then uh, it's got some life. So the entrepreneur moves on that, but we need to be also conscious like, and this goes back quite a few years, it comes like from research by Gibb, um, is that 
when there is a potential for growth, once that growth or whatever it is, whether it's a product or a process, um, uh, is acknowledged, what is it going to be that going to grow? There are a number of things that have an impact which need to be assessed. For example, the key internal influences in the organization that you're working with, right? Or you're working in, and, uh, and what the external factors are, right? Because you have influential factors outside and influential, influential factors within the organization that you're trying to, to work in, right? And, and this is what determines the outcomes, right? So basically speaking, once you have the ingredients of uh, the entrepreneur and the product, all right, then it boils down in simple terms to accumulating the resources that you need. And what I mean by resources that one would need, not necessarily just money, but it could be strategic partnerships, alliances, and all those sorts of things that are going to facilitate what you want to do. And finally, building a capacity to do it, all right? So the speed of, uh, of commercialization can vary from, from one commercialization exercise to another. I agree very strongly with what uh, Nate and Jacqueline said about you know, having this uh, ambition to grow and that growth is going globally, needs to be adopted from the beginning right, of, the, um, of the exercise, but yes, the simple, the simple answer to a question is commercialization in your control. Yes, it is in your control, as long as you follow a fundamental process, right? One of the things that, that we do here within the school, the way I teach commercialization, is that I always have live real projects in, in the classroom setting. I, I can have up to six, six innovations. And these innovations come like from companies that are already established, right? And they come from people who are just starting out. So it's a very good plan. And one of the first things that I actually do with these people before we actually go into class is assess the, uh, where their innovation is. And when I say innovation, I mean like their product or service or whatever it is. And we usually measure it in about like in four dimensions, like the innovation itself, it, the resource index, the strategy that they're employing, and, and, and also the, um, uh, the, the market index, right? And sometimes it's not the first time that you come to innovation, come up with innovations that are not ready to be commercialized because there is still so much groundwork to be done, but there are others that are ready to be commercialized. And then one of the things that is very important, extremely important, is what we commonly refer to as the strategic triangle. And that is where the strategy, the resources, and the structure of the business that you're in are always kept in balance. They must be kept in balance. Because if you go ahead with a strategy and you don't have the right structure for it, the likelihood that it won't be successful. And the same applies with resources. So yes, it is in your control but it is a process that needs to be rigidly followed. And I think it's much like what Nate mentioned earlier about the implementation side of things, but it's like following a structured plan and pivoting 
is only if something really has changed in the environment to say, hey, you need to think about this in a different way, or it needs to solve the problem this way. It usually happens in the process, right? That's why there is this minimum viable product. And I think what you're saying, um, Antoine, about personal traits are so important. Um, I do agree. And I always think about me and, and my startup journey and what, what skills do I need to develop to, to make this more efficient and, and go smoother and lose less money and time um, wasted in networking or collaboration or managing a team? What kind of skills would you guys suggest would be the most important? Well, <laughs> I think if I, if I may have a go at this is, I think it's not just one thing that you can really say, this is it. Because if you know you don't have a certain capability, you probably can do something about it to acquire it, right? But what is, I think, very important to assess is this, like, you know, one of the things that we all also look at is profiling the innovation. And what I mean by profiling in innovation is assessing what its market potential might be, right? Uh, assessing whether this will be challenged once it's out in the market, okay? And if, if it is, what is the potential market for this, for this thing? And the reason why these things need to be a little bit uh, looked at, not necessarily in great detail, is like, because there's this question in the end, is this something that is marketable from the point of view of investing so much money in it and it's going to come back, there's going to be a return, right? So this is the commercial side of things. So, so the, one of the very first things is profiling this and profiling. And usually profiling doesn't mean that you don't make money or anything like that, but it does have an influence of how much money you invest in it, right? It's like, how much money do I invest in it? And then the challenge becomes, what can I change in this? What can I pivot to make it longer or bigger or whatever the case may be, right? And these are all the steps, I guess, that both Jacqueline and Nate were referring to in the implementation of in the doing of something, right? This is all part of that exercise. But whatever it is, it's like something you can acquire. It's not, I mean, we're surrounded with resources, unbelievable around us all the time, right? You just have to look. I don't know what my colleagues think. But... Yeah, I, I can, I guess, expand or extend on, on that point. The, I think I agree with Antoine, the, you know, knowing what you have and what you don't have, whether it's talent, um, resources, capabilities, um, tools, then that's, that's just really great awareness. And so always sort of testing knowing what your um, what is your go-to-market strategy and do you have the right tools in place to be able to execute upon that. The big, the other thing that I agree with and really try to emphasize both at the, the operation that I'm a part of and amongst my, across my portfolio companies is rapid testing. So really being able to move quickly and, and to Andrew's point, knowing what, what are your objectives in any experiment that you're undertaking. When I say experiment, if you don't know exactly what the right path forward is and how are you quickly testing that path um, and what dollars you're investing into that test and then what is the expected return on that, that, um, that investment, you know, whether it's marketing dollars, whether you're, um, it's around product innovation, whether it is a hire um, then really, you know, really be, be 
very aware and have a keen understanding of what your your metrics are and then how you're sort of testing and assessing anything that you are trialing um, and then really know like when do we make a call on go no go if something's working or not get going what are the benchmarks to determine a yes or a no and then move quickly to to try the next thing the other piece is recruiting is the team at the early stages is everything and so I always you know, the, your founding team, obviously you have your founders and then you have the first, let's say 10 hires. That, that's, your, that's your culture. They're setting, there's so much tone that is set with the, the first 10 employees. And I think really there's skills and there are um, experience, you know, making sure that if there's something that's really critical to your business, try to hire someone who is, knows best in class practices, really care about where they're coming from, or at least, um, you know, have the the willingness to to roll up their sleeves and kind of learn quickly. So hiring is one of the most, if not the most important thing. So um, that's what I would, the two things I would call out is recruiting and then rapid testing on anything that your, any of your execution plan where there's sort of a fork in the road and it's A, B test, which way do you go? Know exactly what you're testing for, assess it quickly and then make decisions. And don't be afraid of, failing with these small tests um, just just be efficient with how you're failing and be be able to sort of pick up and move on quickly I think for, for me one of the key mindsets rather than skills is malleability so a lot of founders need to be dogged on their vision but the world will change your constraints will change the externalities as Jacqueline said will change as well and you can't control those so you need to be adaptable in, in the way you think about your idea and your business. And part of the way you do that is through this testing or a really hypothesis-driven approach rather than this is the way I want to do it. So it has to be the way I'm going to do it. Um, and so I see lots of I see lots of startup entrepreneurs who have a really interesting idea, but they're not willing to change that idea 20 or 30% or change the market or change the product 20 or 30% in response to customer needs. And that's sometimes the reason why they fail to commercialize. So I think being really malleable in your um, in your approach, and that also means just being you know open minded in terms of um, in what you're tackling and how you're tackling it. So I think that's probably one of the key things. But I agree, recruitment um, is a massive one as well. I think um, those first couple of employees, you know, there's something so interesting about having three to five employees, which is about the size of our team, because you have one person sick or one person. Um, not uh, you know um, not fitting the culture correctly it massively disrupts you have one person in an organization of a thousand people uh, it's much 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 different so yeah those first you know three to ten or five people are absolutely critical I think and will um, often um, be a big marker of success yeah absolutely and I, I what you were saying before Jackie how you can you can learn if you don't have these skills initially you can just learn them and as long as you have that willingness to really be onto that then then there, there is the opportunity for you which is really reassuring to some of our listeners um and I think some of our listeners might be younger still at uni so I think it's great to finish off with pieces of advice so if you guys were back in your first lecture at UWA what would you different do differently given what you know now I think what I would have done is more, so I've had two, I went to business school, did my MBA here at NYU and uh, the college 
experience here where there's a lot more say, extracurricular networking, just trying different things outside of the academic program. I think that's what I would have done. I think my missed opportunity at UWA was probably utilizing the, the university because I think there's so much, you know, you're studying what you learn from an academic perspective is one piece of it. And it's, it's definitely helpful and incremental to your existing knowledge base. But I think the, the networking element, sort of understanding what, you know, entrepreneurial programs for sure, um, uh, getting involved with doing work experience at places where you can really like, so going outside of your own academic program and, and seeing what else is out there, that's where I would have flexed a lot more. Look, uh, I teach business school students and I teach scientists. And one of the most uh, surprising things is that people who are doing scientific degrees in biotechnology or anything like that, at first when they come into these courses because they are core units in their program, they don't quite understand why they're doing them. And uh, the interesting thing is that by the end of the course, when they do two modules um, and they're producing a business case, they are amazed at themselves that they can do such a thing. They would have never thought of themselves being, you know, sort of entrepreneurial. They don't recognize that they have the ability to be entrepreneurial because entrepreneurial I mean, like one of the things I talk about quite a lot is it's more about helping yourself to help others first, right? Even coming up with an innovation of some sort, it's like you're helping yourself, but that innovation is to help others really. And that is the core of, of you know, being in that, being an entrepreneur. Um, I, I use, I really believe that theoretical knowledge is not sufficient on its own. And that is the reason why I integrate so many projects, real projects into a classroom. So in other words, the students, while they're doing their coursework, they have a full opportunity to integrate with the owners of project and discuss the elements of what they're learning with the project owner, right? And develop a business case together. So I don't think you can really see this in isolation ever. You can't see theory in isolation and you can't see practice in isolation. Right, but I think the, the key to this is like encouraging students to integrate as fast as possible. And we start that in the classroom. It didn't happen a decade ago, it happens now. And I see it happening even more. I see entrepreneurship as a matter of fact, the, entrepreneur, the entrepreneurship skills more than anything else infused in any discipline, uh, because it's all about innovation, like innovating whatever you're doing, whether it's a process, whether it's a product, or even the way it is marketed. So yes, I think this is very valid that, that the practical side of things is integral, integral to the learning of entrepreneurship. I think my big um, piece of advice is probably to follow your energy and not be afraid of, of sunken costs. So I think Years ago, I probably should have made the switch to leaning into software development because it's something that I really, really love. And, you know, I've been doing it. I'm self-taught. I've been doing it for literally 10 or 15 years, but never really done it as a professional. It's more as been as a hobby or as always a side thing. 
Um, and I wish I did that, you know, mid, mid to early 20s and, and gain more experience then than rather where, where I'm at now, which is, is trying to commercialise products and, and learn at the same time. So, um, yeah, I would say follow your energy and don't be afraid to, to switch and to change careers at any time. I think that's one of the big challenges people have is they do their degree. That means that they must be this thing. They must be the, the doctor or the lawyer or the, the consultant. That's great to have a goal and an objective. But if, if you find yourself not enjoying it, don't be afraid to switch. And entrepreneurship is a great path to take, but it's also a really tough one to take as well. Um, I think the biggest thing any entrepreneur needs is, is to have perseverance and to have a really strong work ethic because when it hits that two or three year mark where the, the shine of it kind of wears off and it's just hard work, you need to kind of have grit to, to get through that, that part of the journey. And I think that's where most people um, give up. So I think, yeah, don't be afraid to, to switch, follow your energy um, and, and you've got to have grit if you want to take the entrepreneurial path. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it, it has been a bit of an alternate route taking this entrepreneurship path. Um, and I, I actually initially studied engineering, believe it or not, um, because that's just what my school and, and my family just thought I would be good in. But my attention to detail isn't there. And I decided to <laughs> not do that. Um, so I turned my passion of photography and, and drone um, droning into a, a business, which is I always encourage people to just convert their passion to something that they can potentially make money off or at least do something that they love rather than being in a desk job that they they hate. And yeah, I, I just find it's really, it's great to see so many organisations um, like UWA really taking a, uh, their best foot forward to bring in entrepreneurship and innovation as another career path and something that's not so alternate, um, which I think is really exciting. And so I, I would just quickly mention as we finish up here, that unit that I did um, called Launchpad and cringely say it changed my life because it definitely did. Um, so it, it, what it teaches you to do is to start a business in 12 weeks. And so you start with customer validation, which I think a lot of you guys were mentioning, you know, it, it's good to, to try things, but you want to make sure you don't waste too much time and money. And so you do a lot of customer validation. You make some assumptions about your target market. You get out into the real world and you make sure that um, people actually want your business. Otherwise, you're just throwing a whole lot of time time and money into something that's not actually going to work um, so it's a academically accredited unit at WA um, and yeah so that's one of the many courses we have at Bloom we also have some soft skills workshops um, via Shine you can learn networking and time management and goal setting and so yeah if you want to learn more about these um, these courses or any of the other um, businesses that the, um, the people in the podcast today have mentioned they'll be in the um, podcast keynotes and so without further ado we'll finish up this podcast and thanks so much for coming guys thank you thanks Imogen thanks, thanks Joe. nice to meet you all CEOs and founders of startup businesses face many challenges raising startup capital building a management team developing competitive products starting a marketing program finding early customers and more the prospect of launching a new startup can be daunting on Tuesday, the 12th of April, join Dr. Antoine Muzu and a panel of UWA graduates who will share their entrepreneurial pathway, successes and failures, and top tips to any budding entrepreneur. This is an exclusive webinar for UWA alumni. Register online today.